This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicide's taking it. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for episode 135, minute 135 of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, is one of the rare remaining Australian film critics that is working at a large publication. They don't exist. They're an endangered species. Um, There are a bunch of us freelancers out there, but there are some fixtures um, of of our... uh, cultural sort of storytelling and appraising of art in Australian um, uh, media landscape. I'm talking to one of those right now. So it's a rare bird that I'm speaking to. We are watching Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat Together, the original theatrical version. It's two hours and 14 minutes on your dial, 135 minutes into one eight minute podcast. The gentleman that I'm speaking to is a writer for The Age newspaper in Australia, previously a co-editor of Senses of Cinema, has written for the Australian Book Review, and is just a seasoned film critic in the landscape and comes with high recommendation from another seasoned veteran of the Australian cultural landscape, Philippa Hawker. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Jake Wilson to the show. Jake, welcome to One Eight Minute. Hi, Blake. It's very nice to be here. And um, I should say I, too, um, I identify as a freelancer rather than as a fixture, I will say, even though I've been through this for a long time. I definitely don't feel like a fixture. I think everyone who feels like a fixture um, doesn't have the right mindset. So I think that's a good mindset to have in this contemporary flux that we're in, but that's good. Um, Yeah, for folks who are listening, if you're not in Oz, um, you know, uh, you can find Jake on all the things that you can find for international critics, the Rotten Tomatoes and and the like. Um, But he writes for our age papers here. So, mate, thank you for being a part of the show. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. And so... Right now, I'm dragging Jake in right in the deep end of this movie, right in a very, you know, a, a sort of a critical emotional moment for the character of Neil McCauley. And, you know, a few just just mere episodes ago, you guys would have heard um, Garth Franklin um, and Stu Coote and I, sort of seasoned vets of the show, talking about this real tension um, of of the Neil McCauley and Edie relationship. And the last time we saw them on screen together, it, it, it's, it's got a feeling of Stockholm syndrome. So in the, in the present minute, so minute 134 and five, this scene um, of them sort of uh, making a brief pit stop before ultimately going to their end destination or what they think it, that is heading to the airport, Neil and Edie stop. And it's, it's a moment where Neil is pleading with Edie. Um, so Robert De Niro's Neil is pleading with Amy Brenneman's Edie to sort of stay a part of his life. And it is a fascinating scene in the context of their character arc. And I can't wait to unpack it with Jake. So what we're going to do now is we're going to check it out with you guys. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. There's no point in me going anywhere anymore. It's going to be alone without you. Thank you. 
Well, I thought, you know, when I, when I first saw this, I thought, well, four shots, how much could happen in four shots? But a lot does happen. <laughs> That's exactly right. A lot happens. And especially, sorry, I, we kind of buried the lead there, but the coda of that shot, the post Edie and Neil roadside is leading up to one of the other most powerful and important moments of this film. You know, a sort of, I don't know. It's like a it's like a false climax. It's like the end of an act of the entire movie, right? If this is a, sometimes people, you know, in, in sort of broad storytelling terms in filmmaking, they always talk about the three act structure. But if you sort of prescribe to anyone who, who says no, it's more of like a Shakespearean five act structure. It's like we're heading into the end of Act Four right now. Like basically, if you're talking about that, yeah. and and then we're rolling into the conclusion of the film. But yeah, I just. Um, that that moment strikes me so much because uh, we're sort of at the conclusion of Neil sort of pleading with Edie and I just think it's a I think it's just a, a really ballsy thing for a director and a performer to know that they're basically out of focus in the shot and still to have the power to convey emotions and sort of melt away their their armour and be convinced that this is a good idea well, I mean, one of one of the the issues, the questions, I guess, watching this, and maybe you you have more of a theory about this than I do, is why why does Edie change her mind in the end? Because she, as you say, last time we saw her, she was, um, you know, not really um, in a place where where she wanted to be part of this guy's life. No, no, I, I don't know, Jake. Uh, I float between different opinions on Edie myself. You know the the. The last scene, it's, it's, you know, I think in the context of the movie, the thing I like to just remind people about the relationship, because some people are, you know, this is an element of the film that just doesn't work for them. You know, the Edie storyline is a really challenging one. And it's, I think it's challenging because it's uncomfortable. Like the scenes are genuinely have a great, a great deal of tension. I don't think the performances are bad. I think the performances are top notch, but I just think their arc is, you know, it's, it, it, it comes with it a lot of conflict because you see Neil, you don't know whether Neil's lying to himself you don't know whether Edie is lying to herself. And the answer is probably that they're both lying to themselves. <laughs> and also, yeah. um, you know, these two lonely people have sort of lightning struck them, but they've only really had a couple of interactions. They're still in this like heightened state yeah. of like gushy lovey sort of thing. And I think for all of us, it's kind of unfathomable to think about meeting someone, having two dates, and then potentially that you watch them on the news all day murdering people. <laughs> like, I just don't yeah. understand what that would feel like. And then you say, yes, okay, this, this, is, um, this is somebody I want to give my life to. Yeah. Do I want, do, is this the person that I want to live my life with? And I, I don't know. But, it, you know, how lonely is one going to be? How, how, how much is this beautiful fantasy of escaping and living a romantic life forever you know how how much of a grind has she been on like she's not like she's not 22 you know maybe she's like 28 or 29 she's close to 30 you know they are still you know age appropriate to to an extent and yeah a lot younger but you know not like 22 like she's she's you know she's she's a little bit older maybe she's been out in la for a decade you know since college in new york and maybe life's going nowhere and maybe this is like the golden ticket and it's just unfathomable that he's this dude. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like a lot of things in this movie for me. Like, if I start to think about them rationally too hard, I'm like, would this happen? Could this happen? But in in the, the sort of flow of the movie, the way it's orchestrated, the way it's been built up to, I kind of accept it. Yes, agree. Totally agree. When you scrutinize things every every 60 seconds of a movie and you try and prescribe, um, we try and prescribe like authentic reality on it sometimes, even though the movie, you know, for all of its operatic melodrama in a way, it's got this real anchor in authentic reality. Um, But I think that, yeah, like I think we, we forgive some of the melodrama or we forgive some of these heightened emotions because it's literally chunking, you know, a massive conflicted relationship and a mini arc and it's trying to be punchy and economical and still keep this thing moving like it's a 166 odd minute movie with you know before credits about 170 minutes with credits um but yeah it's it's that kind of momentum that we're trying to maintain here so this uh, you know in a longer storyline perhaps or, or a longer movie that was maybe less well constructed around how to pace out an ending it would give you more time with these characters, but would it feel slow and would it lag and take away from the other blistering sort of downhill momentum that we have towards this ending? Well, I mean, if man were doing, you know, heat now, he might say, okay, it's going to be an eight hour Netflix series. And that would be a whole different proposition. Absolutely. It might be also great, but I'm glad that we, we have the three hour version, which is with all one um, experience and we, we don't have it spaced out. Yeah, I think I think it's something different. You know, that's um, one thing another great podcast does um, on the Ringer Podcast Network, Bill Simmons' podcast network. They have a show called The Rewatchables, and that's one of his fundamental questions when they go back to these movies that they, you know, they celebrate their, for re- their rewatchability. He's like, would this movie now be a Netflix series? But I think, you know, you're, you're a cinephile. You're a guy who obviously watches a ton of movies and, and has a theatrical experience. And... And I just wonder, you know, in your sort of in your up in your upbringing in the Melbourne suburbs near Valhalla Cinema, um, where Ooh. was 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 Heat a movie that you watched and you got to see in the cinema before you even before you started writing about films? Oh, sure, yeah. And um, let me think. No, it would be before I started uh, writing about films, but it's '95, uh, so I would have been. Um, I guess uh, seventeen, yes. roughly, when I saw it. So that, that's a um, that's an impressionable age. Um, I yeah. So about the same year as Casino, I think. The, exactly um, the same year. Two big De Niro movies came out that year. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm not sure if I was 100 percent sold on it at seventeen. I had very um, I was very picky at that age. I think. Um, Maybe I thought it was a bit over the top. I probably like it better now. <laughs> That's funny that you're more discerning viewer at 17. I was more of a snob at 17, I think. But no, I mean, not necessarily because I liked action movies. I remember I was you know, very big on, on Speed, which had come out, I think, the previous year. But I think I thought there was something a bit, you know, there was a bit of grandiosity to hate that at that time um, rubbed me the wrong way. But I, I will say I tend to have that, Thing with Michael Mann movies in particular where I need to see them twice before I start to appreciate them. Yes. I really had that with Public Enemies. Uh, uh, the first time I was like bamboozled by it and the second time I, I, I loved it. So, And what about Miami Vice? Almost, I need to go back to Miami Vice. Again, when I, when I saw it in the cinema, I, I was like, well, there aren't some 
there aren't a lot of characters in this apart from uh, Gong Li, but I, I need to go back to it. <laughs> It'd be an interesting one for you to, but I, I think that that maybe is why people like this show is because Heat is a movie that feels like it's more something that can be savoured. Like you can watch it again and again and you feel like you're taking a new lens to it. You know, you take, you, you then, you know, as a lot of people say, when you have a particularly dense movie, I think the most striking contrast for me was like, I, I deeply hated Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line the first time I saw it. I deeply hated it. And it just haunted yeah. me. I think that weird, um, nondescript, um, uh, disembodied, voiceover like the poet the poet sort of uh, yeah. poetics that sort of underscored a lot of the what was happening whether it was like sometimes it was like right on point and other times it felt incongruous they just haunted me for like Ooh. weeks and i went back and watched it and i was like god this movie's a masterpiece <laughs> you know it just had this like absolute turn on a dime hated it and loved it um and completely struck by it but i think that that's like you know all the best movies are worth watching again i think that sometimes people have got yeah. like this obsessive like oh i have to see all new movies it's like no 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 no, no. you can slow down you can you know there are movies that are worth your time to reinvest in that's why how people figure out that they're masterpieces because you watch them again and again and again and they continue to stand the test of time and and, and repeat viewings well, exactly. I mean, you see something once, you say it's a masterpiece, you're kind of guessing, you know, because you don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> so those multiple viewings or if you're going to lose interest. But yeah, I think Man is a little bit like um, Malik in that way, and that there's a very particular sensibility, and you can react sort of positively or negatively to it when you, you first see one of their films. But then, you know, you, if you keep going back, you have to admit that this is really kind of textured, you know, there's there's a lot of artistry in this, whether, whether it's kind of your cup of tea or not yes that's so funny you say that i think that's one of the best lines i've heard in this entire show it's like if you say a movie's a masterpiece on first viewing you're just guessing you are absolutely just guessing that is fantastic um you know it's funny that you know we you know i didn't mean to stumble into malik but with man it's like they're essentially in the same class of filmmakers like malik is probably his closest contemporary in a weird way as a filmmaker who started making films, you know, Man made his telemovie Jericho Mahler around the same time as Malik made Badlands. And then Malik in his weird protracted, I'm going to make a movie every 10 years and then like suddenly I'm going to make four movies in four years. He had this sort of weird run. Um, Michael Mann sort of made a movie and then went back to television for many years and then makes, you know, or, you know, sorry, makes two movies, then goes back to television for many years then makes another movie, then back to television again for a amount of time. I feel like those two guys, you know, you know, the, I don't know whether they, they've got, they do have this weird intrinsic connection in that class of filmmakers that all emerged out of New Hollywood that, you know, they <clears throat> sort of were operating on the fringes and they're not really kept in the, you know, they're not talked about in the same class as your Malik's or, oh, sorry, you're not talked about in the same class as the De Palmas and the Spielbergs and the Coppolas. Like, they're not in that little clique. They're sort of on the fringes of that, but they're all very much from and of that time. And they're just different people took different expressions with how they were going to explore that time on on screen. Well, they're both, um, both guys who have somehow figured out how to make really quite experimental films on a... Um, on Hollywood type budgets, which I guess is getting harder <laughs> and harder to do. Yes, but and they're also romantics, I think, in in the broadest sense, both of them. And and people, both of them, are kind of about straining after 
you know, some kind of sublime experience, which is always kind of out of reach. I guess that that's, there's an emotional connection between them in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that brings us perfectly back to the beginning of this minute, which is, you know, right at the end, I'm sorry to bring you in. So, you know, this is the, the thrill and the agony of this discipline is that sometimes you're brought into the middle of a scene or, or you're, or you're, you, you, and, and the, the lovely person before you, um, is another amazing Melbourne, uh, based film critic, um, the lovely Joanna Demetia. And so, oh, yes. uh, and so yeah, Joanna's yeah. going to be, Joanna's going to be cheated of this conclusion to her minute. Um, but I think it's, as we get back here to De Niro performing to Edie and making this plea, like it is, I mean, from the guy who was looking in her eyes, pleading her, pleading for her to, you know, to, that this is all going to be over soon, to the guy that's here, they feel like different people. Like this is the talent of De Niro, like the sincerity level in this guy's face. Mm. Like he mm. feels like he believes it. And the pleading in the, you know, aforementioned scene is like desperate. You know, it's, it's, it's incongruous completely to the character. But I think here he's just, I don't know, there's just something about the centeredness and the look and the anchor and the framing. Like, again, Spinotti is lit the living daylights out of this scene. Um, yeah. it, just, it just looks like, it looks like you feel like Edie could, could let the armor down with this guy, but definitely not the guy in the last scene. I feel like the the composition here really works, but it's sort of totally unrealistic. Like, why would he stand behind her in this way? And, <laughs> you know, rather than at least sort of trying to to make some some eye contact, why why would he be um, kind of hovering over her? It, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense to me as like how two people would actually engage, but um, it works because we need to see them both in this case. And of course, you know, there's lots and lots of scenes in this, in this film where we're looking at one person or another and we're not looking at both people at once. I mean, the, the diner scene is built on the idea that we're, we're not looking at both people at once, but here we need to see both people, even if not in focus. Yes. And also I think, um, you know, the, uh, the f- there's like a weird sense of like freedom in this moment that she's refusing to even look at him. Yeah, so like I think that adds to the tension of the scene. It's like I feel like in the previous scene, I think you may have just nailed it right, which is like literally the the physicality of the scene and the and the relationship between bodies in a space. It's like when he's right in her face, he's threatening. Yeah. But I think yeah. here her turned away her slightly out of focus at her out of front he's kind of having to he's kind of having to convince her with none of the tools of like intimidation or anything like that he just has to pour his soul out and if she turns around she's coming with him and if she doesn't yeah. turn he's got to go it's that simple and that makes it so visual and she's completely, you know, she kind of is in her own space. And we don't really know up to the moment when she, she turns, when she goes away, we don't really know what she's thinking. We know she's processing. Yes. We know she's taking it all in, but we, we don't know, you know, which way she's, she's going to go. And we don't know what she's making of any specific thing he says. No, and it's also like, so I'm just sort of playing this for Jake and I, guys, while you guys are listening. And it's really only about 10 seconds into this scene and I'm just doing it in silence for the, you know, as, as we often do on the show, but it's like 10 seconds into the scene before even you get a, you even get maybe some cards being revealed on what her decision may be with 
just sort Ooh. of an opening of the mouth, a release, a release of the jaw. It's like I feel yeah. like this is just a great bit of, you know, just shows Amy Brenneman's fantastic aptitude for performance here. It's like something about a clenched face and then just relinquishing a bit of stress lines there. It's just starting yeah. to tell us so much before the music cue comes in. So there's a very pronounced music cue, I think, adding to that operatic, romantic yeah. sort of thing that's happening here. Um, but... Yeah, so when she's when she's here and she's turning, mm. and and you're starting to see the release and the reprieve, it takes some time, and then the music the music is there, and and I think it's that final moment where Neil just says like he's he lays it out all on the table, and then there's a pause, and there's a nice meaty pause, and he just like Edie. It's like this thing. I don't. I don't know where this that that final nail where she can't resist anymore at that point. She's like. Everything's down. She blinks. She looks down. The music cue engages, and she turns. And even when she turns, he he still kind of looks hopeful and sincere. He's not saying, you know, you need to go. You need to stay. And and when she grabs him, I love I love the touch of her grabbing his shirt and sort of pounding mm. on his chest, like, you know, it's it's a much more muted version of like the why did you do this to me that we see in an earlier scene. You know, like why did you do this to me, and. And then the connection of their faces here, um, where she barely, where she like recoiled from his face in the previous scene. I think it's just that, that okay, here's the armor down, you know, Neil's, and, and I think also it's so hard to do, but like I try and imagine what it was like watching this the first time going, oh, Neil's going to get away now. Yeah. Yeah, like, you thought? Yeah, I, I guess. Like you're like, oh, it's almost impossible, right? You see you're like, the good guy's going to win is basically what you think. But in this moment, you're like, no, Neil's going to get away. Like, he made the choice. Edie's going to go with him and they're going to get away. Well, I'll tell you what I, I think I thought. I might be wrong about this because I mean, going back, yeah, you know, over 20 years. But I think I thought this uh, this was like the, the classic um, film noir thing or like uh, Le Samurai, you know, where the guy is undone by love, you know. He, yes, um, He's a pro. He knows exactly what he's doing. And then he allows, like, emotion to creep in and that undoes him. And, in fact, that is not what undoes it. No. No, No, he's he's programming. Like, the love in this case, which is cool, like, it's sort of anti-genre, even though it adheres to so many of those same genre tropes as La Samurai and those noir films. In this moment, the love is the escape. Like, like being, being, being being willing to adhere to his philosophy of, like, when you spot the heat around the corner, get out of here. Um, I think one of the funny lines that has happened in this show was Bill Gabiri's first appearance on the show. He says, not only does this guy not escape when the heat is around the corner, he doesn't escape when the heat is in front of him at a coffee table. Like that's like, like, like that is, and I think about that sometimes and I just sort of chuckle to myself exactly as you just did, because like right now the escape is here. Like the fantasy is real in this moment, the yeah. fantasy is real. And I think yeah. that, you know, whatever conflict you have in the, in, or however challenged you are, in those two scenes in isolation, I think in the in the context of the movie, I love that they work. And I think that they also work together as like two little mini essays about, you know, people being broken down um, by the situation and, and having a little bit of framing and context. And then also, you know, the thought of go or stay mm. and that wrestle, right? Um, mm. And wanting to be in love. That's the other thing. I think like we're at the 38th second of this minute and this frame is just so perfect. Like there's... You know, these two people in this frame, 
I should take a snap of it because it's just so lovely. Like they want to be in love in this moment. Yeah. They absolutely look like two people who want to be in love. And so right now this is this is it. Mm. I was afraid when I came on here that I wouldn't have anything to say and I have so many things to say. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to say was that what really makes the, the, the moment for me is – the moment of almost physical clumsiness in Daenerys' reaction when um, she turns around and she yes. almost throws herself at him, and he almost recalls like, "Oh, here's this this woman doing this, and I don't quite know how to yes. how to respond. I, I'm not quite in the moment." And you talked about you know these scenes being uncomfortable, and I think you know Daenerys is the master of emotional discomfort. You know, he never ever plays a guy who is at ease with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, always plays somebody who's kind of clumsily trying to process whatever it is he's feeling and um you know kind of stumbling through it a bit and that's what but that's what makes it that's what gives it a bit of um authenticity i think yeah i, I don't think i think the wrestle of the great de niro characters between you know you can even go back to like taxi driver the wrestle between like reality and psychotic fantasy <laughs> <laughs> like that's an extreme example but like the wrestle between those two things is so fascinating he's such a phenomenal performer for wrestling between those two things yeah and it's like um and and the you know there's um even like raging bull as well as like it's about being loved and adoration and then and and then making people love you like there's this weird connect like d- being loved and being adored is like this huge motivation in this guy and that manifests itself in like violence, sexual violence, like obsession, paranoia, all those things. But it's like it's the two it's the two draws at the you know the beginning end of the movie at the peak of his career is Lamotta and then later on when he's a comedian. Like there's this similar arc of adoration that's there. And I think that's here what's so great about this tension is there is a guy who is at odds with the fantasy version of who he he thinks he should be and his philosophy and the programming that he's had to maintain to stay alive and to stay free. And so I think that in this moment it's yeah like like you said I think the sincerity of the moment he's not even prepared for her to say yes. I think that no. maybe is probably where we're nailing it. It's like right in this moment I don't think he knows whether she's going to say yes or not. And even if he does, obviously he does. He's read the script. But I think the mastery of his performance is that that awkwardness makes us believe that maybe he didn't think it was going to happen. That's what actors can do. They can actually get to a point where they surprise, they're surprised by what's happened. Even though they've read the script, they kind of genuinely, <laughs> they're genuinely in the moment. They're genuinely surprised. They don't yeah. know how they do it. I don't, do I, it. I don't know how he does it. I, I mean, again, you're talking about a guy in 95. What's he made? 30 movies by this time? Like 30 movies, some, yeah. let's say, you know, 30 movies, some of the biggest movies ever made. How is he still surprising? You know, maybe in 2019 we can talk about how, whether or not he's still able to surprise, but most certainly at 95, I think it's like the peak of his, you know, one of, one of his other career peaks, you know, his early peaks, mm. and this is like a such a strong part of his career. Mm. It's funny, one you hadn't mentioned, which I was just uh, watching a few weeks ago because it was on at the, the Melbourne Cinematheque, is Once Upon a Time in America. Oh, great movie. And, yeah, and there's there's really quite a bit. Um, in, I was surprised um, looking at Heat again that it does have kind of something in common with Once Upon a Time in America, and in, in that it's very much about time, yes. like either you know time kind of being extended or like never enough time, time running out, which is what yeah. Daenerys' character here is all about. He's all about that, and if and and I think that that's um that's a you know that's a great sort of manipulation of that, like people 
in power, in charge, free time. Like, literally, you know, sometimes the earth is like a ticking time bomb that's going to go off, like the rotations of the world. Um, and I've had some great theories um, that I'll, I'll tease in more detail for later, but I've had some great theories that this movie's amount of time is also very interesting. You know, that it's like, you know, if you look at, you know, the sunrise and sets from the beginning of the movie, is this the last seven days of Neil McCauley's life? And so, oh. so some really interesting stuff that we could talk mm. about there. But this, in this climactic moment, this romantic moment, you know, they're going to cherish their time together and they're going to live this fantasy. And, you know, with 20 seconds to go, these are two people that are in love and they're going to try and overcome this chaos. And, and yet, if very briefly, there's a look in his eyes of, oh, I've still got to be somewhere. You know, I can't <laughs> for the moment. That is the, and that is the beauty of just seconds in this movie. In one moment, Neil is assured, Edie is comfortable, and in an upcoming scene, one of the most iconic, the upcoming drive and tunnel scenes of this movie, you watch Neil go from this guy, this sincere guy, this guy who's ready to live this fantasy, to merge fantasy and reality and sort of discard the programming and the discipline and the code that he's had to live by. And then a phone call, an impulse, a piece of information um, can really flip that on its head. Um, so many things I want to say. One is about the um, the ocean, which, you know, obviously is all through the film. Yes. But, um, you know, it's so important that you have the, the sound of the ocean here and also the sound of the birds, the, the just before dawn kind of felling. The, yes. Um, the sense of, oh, we're, we're waiting for the, the dawn to break. But when, when you were talking about... Um, release i was thinking well this is kind of what michael mann does over and over this kind of build up and release build up and release and you know it, it's linked to that idea of that the waves breaking and they keep breaking and they keep breaking and the tide keeps flowing on and that's that's kind of the feeling of um of the whole film for me yeah i i couldn't agree more i think that he's he's got a, a great command of like that there's a cyclical nature in a lot of his stories things move on yeah. You know, things live, things die. It's part of the process. Um, and what's cool about Michael Mann movies, in some like some really pronounced ways, um, and and some really sort of minor ways, that like time's going to just keep moving. So these characters are just a in a moment in time. And I think like you look at his biopic Ali, it's very much that. Like he ta- he takes a real different approach. He's not trying to tell a life story. He's kind of telling, you know, a, you know, two parts of a story. It's not a triptych. It's kind of a two hander where it's like this is the beginning of this guy's career where everything is going right and everything is perfect. And then, you know, this is the thing that he had to drag himself out of, you know, you know, later on. So it's like these two portraits, 10 years apart almost. Um, and then you get with like Miami Vice, especially the theatrical cut version. It's just um, Colin Farrell's character, Sonny, just walking into the back of an emergency room in the movie going to the credits. It's like, these guys are going to keep working. <laughs> you know, these guys are just going to keep working. And I think that that's what's uh, very cool in some of these movies. They're just going to keep doing their thing. They're just going to keep living their lives. They're going to just move on. Until until eventually they um, they hit a wall or they, they <laughs> yes. die. Or, you know, nothing, nothing's going to last forever. Nothing it's lasts keep, forever. It's going until it doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> it's so fatalistic. But I think that's why we're drawn to it, right? It's just this great kind of like re- reprieve of like things are cyclical. Time is luck. You know that you know time. You know I'm gonna I'm gonna wake up before I you know drown in my sleep. You know De Niro's character even says those words. 
Yeah, he does. Yes, and he talks about yeah his his dream of being submerged. This is the, what interests me really about De Niro's character. I hadn't really thought about it till I went back to the film again. That um, uh, Pacino asks him, "Are you you know are you doing what you want to do?" And he says, "No." Whereas no, he says, no, uh, not yet. No, not yet. Whereas Pacino is doing what he wants to do. I mean, he's he's having the time of his life in in some sense. But um, but but I think that. You know how I've always, and I think that's a great point. That's a great take. Like, what is what is he actually talking about? But the way I've always read that is that like Neil McCauley is totally Neil McCauley in a heist. He's like Chris. I had a great, um, and I'll and I'll actually see if I can find the tweet today. I'll get lots of you know great tweets, great emails. So thank you so much for everyone who does. And I had a really good one today. Um, and so this will be slightly after it actually occurred, but I'll, I'll, I'll shout it out anyway because I really I liked the tweet. Um, so earlier today, I was talking to a guy by the name of um, Andy Elijah, and he talked, about, he talked about, he said he always had a take about Chris, and I know this is not necessarily De Niro, but Chris in the high scene, like not giving the crooks a chance to get away by opening fire. Mm-hmm. Okay, He's like, that's interesting. Yeah, well, that was his take. I said, that's a really interesting take, right? And I said, I always thought that Chris, people like Chris and people like Neil, if they see the threat, they are hardwired to kill it. Like, there's no, yeah. there's no hesitation. They see two cops who are armed, it's go. Like, it's on. And I think that that's the, after that state, when Neil's like, not yet, I've always thought about it. I've always thought about it in the context of the heist. Maybe it's because where it is in the movie and the flow of everything, but I've always reflected like when Neil is most Neil, he's in that heist, he's executing a plan to perfection. It's going off without a hitch. Um, but, you know, that's a really interesting take. But but to your point, Vincent is having the time of his life because Vincent like, you know, usually just gnawing on prey, whether he's like chewing yeah. scenery with Albert Torina, um, Albert Torina or, or he's... He's got Tone Loke in a headlock. You know, it's it's all like he's having a ball when anyone's in front of him, just chewing up. You know, Hank Azaria's Alan Marciano. Like, they're they're all just like little snacks for him. But like De Niro's like, he's the he's the main course. He's the pièce de résistance. He's Absolutely. just he's 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 there, right there. And so yeah, but it's a great it's a great thought to think back. Like, what is he saying in that moment? Is there a moment where? Is it is it the highest or is it or is it the completion of the perfection? Like is he is he most Neil when he's looking out that window to that sublime water? You talked about the ocean themes in this movie. Is he that guy that's looking out to that ocean and I've completed something perfectly and I feel good about it? Or is he I don't know, is it the highest? I don't know. I don't think we can have an answer. I kinda like not having an answer. It's good not having an answer, and there's definitely a lot of room for speculation about <laughs> My sense of Neil is that you know, what defines him maybe is having been in prison. Yes. And, um, you know, and probably whatever he went through in prison did destroy, destroy some part of his soul, you know, and in some ways he is a, a dead man walking. He's not, you know, which is maybe why he is so emotionally shut down until this moment when, when he's not. And then, you know, I think he is looking for, for something to wake him up emotionally and he's, he's looking for a, a sort of freedom which he hasn't got yet. I guess that's what I, I take from that line. Yeah, and there's a weird line, you know, in the much derided black hat you know, where Chris Hemsworth character says, and I think it might even be in Jericho Miles saying, look, I do the time, the time doesn't do me. And you get a sense, and you get a sense that when he says it, and, you know, obviously, let's just put it unequivocally out there, like 
in my mind, Black Hat is not as good a movie as Heat for you Black Hat apologists out there. Like, let's just stop. But I think one thing that really resonates for that line is, does anyone actually think that their time is not doing them? You know, do they, they, do they believe it? Like, they can say the mantra. You know, it's almost like, do you Ooh. say it to convince yourself that, that, the, that, that the impacts of prison psychologically, physically, mentally, whatever it is, are not actually occurring and you're doing the time right? But it's like, Neil, like you said, that imprint, it's there. Like, this guy's done his time. He's learned his crafts and trade in there. In the, he's not living a free life necessarily. It's all this really weird, isolated thing. Um, it's a bit the same thing. Well, it is the same thing pretty much with the character in uh, Thief. Yes. Who, um, who has a, a sort of fantasy about what uh, like a perfect life would be, but it, it is so constructed and artificial that it's almost like another kind of trap. Yes. Yeah, and and I think that that the that, you know he's working on these same themes or similar themes in a lot of movies, sort of essaying different things. Whether it's you know, I think it's like it, it is really overt. I like in Public Enemies as far as like looking at criminal infamy. You know, looking at taking it like if you look at there's no two different people than John Dillinger and Neil McCauley. Like Neil McCauley does everything to be invisible, and John Dillinger yeah. is. You know, he waltzes into he waltzes into places like Vincent Hanna waltzes into a crime scene. Like it's the show pony version yeah, of that. Smart. And and you know, you look at Christian Bale as an example. Um, and Christian Bale's the Neil McCauley of police when he's you know the, you know um, uh, when he's hunting after him because he's just clinical. He has a process. Yeah. He follows it. It's like the complete inverse of those two sort of personality traits. And so it's sort of fun to watch how it manifests itself. But like I think, you know, I think with him. Yeah, it's it's. I, I I love what you said there, Jake, and I, I think it's. I love the room for speculation is so underrated. Like mm. in so many movies, it's so overtly prescribed on every single character, motion, mo- movement, mo- you know, emotional trajectory, decision, and sometimes you're like, can I just like, can I just be mildly ambivalent about any of the characters here and what their what their motivations are because. I think that as soon as you do that, people just instantly drive with characters and they don't, you know, sometimes they can't quite put their finger on it. But then at the end of it, it's like, no, I like because I wasn't 100% sure why they made that decision. I wasn't 100% happy with those two corresponding decisions because they didn't seem to make sense, but it was like what they needed to do to get through. And yeah, it's so good. The, the other thing that struck me, and this is getting a little away from our sort of specified minute, but looking at it again, is that in some strange way, it's almost a story of um, unrequited love, because Vincent is really a lot more obsessed with Neil than Neil ever is with Vincent. Oh, I think Vincent, I think Neil plays it cool. I think, think? I, yeah, yeah, you know, the one reason that I, like, I, I totally agree with you, but the one reason I just be a little bit more is, I can't fathom why the guy who's so codified and who has this program that says if the heat is around the corner that you should drop everything, when he sees Vincent and Vincent thinks he's good, he has a deep desire to overwhelm him. Like he can't yeah. wait to, to say, oh, you think you've got me? Like that's the hubris creeping in. Like there's something about that that that's where he taps into a little bit of that Dillinger, right? Which is like the whole, you know, he's been Mr. Invisible. Like, who's the loner? Like, everything up until that point, who's the loner? Oh, this guy's good, everything. 
And when he sits in front of Vincent, there's something that is in his smile at the end of that minute. He's like, oh, maybe we'll never see each other again. And it's like peeking your head out and becoming re-invisible again. I just love that there's like, there is something. But to your point, Vincent is absolutely obsessed with Neil. But I just think that there's something that Neil likes about it. Neil, yeah, Neil, Neil is, Neil's got, Neil's interested. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's not completely one sided. <laughs> no, no, he's little... he's giving him just enough of a uh, just enough of a, a hint that he maybe likes him too. That it's like it, it helps transcend. But I agree. Like Vincent is, he's he because Vincent hasn't met anyone like Neil before. Neil assumes at the beginning that he's met people like Vincent, but he's got a level of tenacity and things that like he you know. Most of the time, he's like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck? How did how did these guys even come on us? Like, I think he's even surprised at how close Vincent got to do it. So he's not, he now has to raise the stakes and go, all right, it's all in to get out, and that's it. That's just about it. So we head into, back to our minute, we head back. It's, a, it's 46 seconds into the minute, and we're down into Venice Beach, and we're seeing a car pull up to Venice Beach in L.A., we're getting this beautiful, we, 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 we edit from, you know, this sort of pit stop, a car, this lonely car coming down the road, a SWAT team member puts their eyes on it, you, you cut into the eyes of another SWAT team member and then another one with like what looks like infrared glasses and a camera. Oh, and he's got a, uh, he's got a rock, rock, R-O-C-K on the back of his, uh, um, on the back of his SWAT helmet, so that's a cool nickname. Um, but we, we're now right in the thick of at the moment we're not quite sure where we are if you just pause it right here but for for those of you who are listening and i'm assuming that if you're now up to minute 135 of the one heat minute podcast i'm assuming you may have seen the film um so we can say we're heading right into what is just a glorious minute again you know filled with uncertainty and tension and filled with am i going to do what is ultimately the thing that's going to make me survive and live happily ever after? Um, or am I going to risk it? Or am I going to take a massive risk and risk myself and risk my son and risk the life of my husband who's on the run? Um, and we get a lovely minute here. But just a nice piece of, I don't know, like it's almost like horror story anticipation, an ambush coming. And what's what's crucial in the context of this minute is that the music continues from the the one yes. scene to the other and just flows us straight over and says, you know, in a way, this is a continuation of the same movement. Yes. And of course, we're looking at two couples. I mean, ultimately, this is going to be the story of another couple whose situation is is parallel and you know a similar choice being made. Yes, so good. Yeah, it's good when you get those nice little mirrored cues that um, work from one scene to the other. I think that this movie is full of mirrored moments and full of match cuts and full of beautiful little cues that carry through. And it's like, um, I was talking with a friend the other day who's like, we were talking about how underrated sometimes it is to have character themes in movies, like in scores. Like, you know, you think of the classic, like a Star Wars, like the Luke Skywalker theme is absolutely undeniable and iconic. And like that you hear it, you, you know, you hear that little flurry um, that you saw on Tatooine for the first time in Star Wars New Hope and it just makes your heart sore because there's some like intrinsic connection you have to them. And I think that in Heat, what's right, it's not necessarily a character theme here, but being tied into like to help cue without like being too manipulative on your emotions, but like going, you're about to now come into this moment, you know, you sort of subconsciously, you're now going to come into a, another 
place where people are faced with a shitty choice that, that is probably not going to go well. I think it's really cool to just be like, all right, we're going to set the scene. We're keeping with the same theme here um, of this moment. So, you know, it sort of gives you a clue as to where it's going to go just prior to getting into this minute. I think the whole way Michael Mann tells stories is, is basically musical. I mean, it is. It, I feel like that the whole thing is orchestrated. Yes. And it's themes weaving in together and, as you say, echoes and contrasts of dynamics and, and so on. And um, Yeah, and there, there's an abstract side to it, even though it's all really, really specific. He does have a jazz, Michael Mann. He yeah. does have a jazz. He's got his jazz moments. But, yeah, like I think you're you're so right that it is a... There is a flow, and that was yeah. like, and that was characteristic of you know his early TV work. You know, Miami mm-hmm. Vice sort of, you know, a lot of people just talk about the Pink Flamingos and things like that. But it's a really gritty and dark show. Has great music choices. You know, really dynamically shot. Everyone in in their dog got their start in it. Bruce Willis, Liam Neeson, like obviously Don Johnson was the biggest TV star in the world for a very long time. Um, lots of great actors sort of percolated through, but it's just you know, energy, tone, and music having such an intrinsic, you know, relationship with his stuff is, you're so right on that. I think that that's, that's, that's this movie. It's a big opera. It's a big, Mm. it's a big opera. Mm. Really great. Which I've come to love really as a jazz film. I mean, literally set in the thirties, but the, what it sort of goes off on strange tangents and doing variations on, on themes we've seen a million times and then almost sort of pushing to the point where it stops making sense. I mean, (laughs) it's why, I mean, and what it does with digital video, obviously. I mean, yes. Which is why I found it so hard to take the first time, I think, because I was like, what the hell is he doing? What do you do? Yeah, I, but I agree with you. I was, I was a bit shocked with it, but I think it's so beautiful. There are just so many, yeah. be- like, there are so, like, especially now that, you know, the, our, our mode of viewing is like 4K, you know, everything. Everyone's got a high definition television. So I think if you revisit, you know, as grating as it may have been at the time on both your cinema screen and your, you, you know, your, your standard TV, when you now watch it, it's just like, oh, okay, cool. Like it, it, it's like that that grating shock that we had at the time is like, oh no, this is just this is just movies now. This is how movies look. Um, yeah, this is, it's, I mean that was the moment of the great crossover from shooting on film to, to shooting digitally. I mean, you know, most things I think then would still have been majority of big movies probably still on film. So majority. we we're seeing it in a different way, perhaps. Yeah, and and also you know he did it much more overtly with Collateral earlier. That was like stylistically important, but I think that people that had this sort of sacred, if you're going to shoot anything that is period film based, you would want the the film stock in a way. I think that's like it's a weird formal like expectation that people have. If you're going to shoot a movie that's based in that time, maybe you should shoot it in film or you should shoot it in this. And I think that like real cinephiles like a Tarantino is like obsessed with making, you know, if you're shooting kill bill and it's a particularly sort of um shaw brothers hong kong I- I- embracing that sort of flavor he's like making the film grain look like that so you know shooting it on crappy cameras and and things like that to give it the same texture and and like it being so important to some people whereas man's like no nah, it's the 1930s they're wearing the clothes they're in the era everything's meticulously you know you know, curated, but I'm shooting it on blistering high definition. <laughs> I'm going to show you every every fiber of this jacket and every curve of this beautiful 30s car. You know, I'm going to show you everything in the most crisp detail yeah. possible. I love it, yeah. 
Well, I think that's a perfect, as we've just dived into romance and bad choices, I think us loving a little bit of Public Enemies is a great way to go out for this moment because we're about to come into another another tension with Public Enemy number two on the list of heat, which is Chris Hairless um, evading the police, or, or will he? Will, how will he get out of this? We don't know. If you've seen this movie a million times like Jake and I have, I'm sure there's no, um, there's no secret, but we just love this next scene. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Mr. Jake Wilson, a critic for The Age. Jake, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Blake. It's been a pleasure. See, and look, he thought that he'd only have 10 things to say or 10 minutes of time to take him. Here we are back at the standard, nearly an hour on this show, talking about heat. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute. I've, as always, been your host, Blake Howard, at Blakey's Batman on Twitter. Anything you want to find out about the show is at oneheatminute.com. Um, we are flying into the end of this show. So July of this year, um, we will have this entity, this beast that is One Heat Minute, living and breathing with every single minute covered. We have an amazing cache of guests coming up, Jake obviously being one of them, but we are lining up into some serious minutes. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to you guys. You would have heard the upcoming episodes as a teaser episode before, but you're going to hear them again. Luke Doolan. Academy Award-nominated filmmaker and editor of Animal Kingdom and Henry Nixon, um, AFI or Actor Award winner, um, uh, as well as just a, a man about town, Australian town and LA town, um, both doing a double episode for the next couple of minutes and then just absolutely stacked crazy guests coming up. So looking forward to sharing that with you. But until next time, catch you another episode of One Eight Minute just around the corner. <laughs>